Welcome to the REACH Australia podcast. My name's Gary Eastman, and our current series is exploring the craft and skill of preaching with a range of preachers from around the country. Exegeting biblical text faithfully is crucial, but that's often not where we struggle as preachers. We get the meaning right, but we fail to get listeners' attention, to keep their attention and apply it well to their hearts and lives. Today, I'm happy to welcome Des Smith from Trinity Church... uh, Today, I'm happy to welcome Des Smith from the Trinity Network of Churches in Adelaide. Des, you've been involved in church planting down there. You've planted a church? Yeah, that's right. So uh, until recently, I was the senior pastor at our mothership here, if you like, in the Trinity Network, Trinity Church Adelaide, um, for four years. But then uh, at the end of last year, beginning of this year, I stepped sideways uh, to uh, plant with a whole bunch of other people um, one of our newer church plants, Trinity Church Mile End, in the western suburbs of Adelaide. You talk just like a local, Des. You say plant wrong. I know, and my wife, Susie, she just, she teases me unendlessly about it. I know, just don't ask me any questions about graphs, people call Grant, uh, dancing, terrible. All of that kind of stuff. I I will try not to do that. Uh, Des, I've uh, been blessed by hearing you as a preacher, and you've got some miles under the belt now, Uh, but everyone started somewhere as a preacher. Tell us about your first experience uh, teaching God's Word in front of others. Yeah, thank you. Um, I remember it pretty vividly and it wasn't great. Um, So it was Mother's Day 2001. And it's fair to say the only way was up from there. Um, So I'd asked my preacher at St. John's Presbyterian in uh, Hobart whether I could give preaching a go. And he said yes. And so I prepared a sermon, except it wasn't really a sermon. Uh, It turns out it was more of an apologetic lecture. Uh, It was on C.S. Lewis's trilemma, you know, the Lord, liar, lunatic thing. Yes. Um, And uh, and it had it had a little bit of Bible in there. I think I mentioned Romans right at the end, but it was more (laughs) like a garnish than certainly the main course. And I tell you what, I mean, it was it was long. It was 55 minutes. Um, (laughs) I, I mean, I've still got the manuscript. I'm pretty sure when I pulled the manuscript up into the pulpit, uh, people thought it was the Bible. Uh, it was yeah. <laughs> it was a very long sermon. Uh, you know, by the time it was finished, entire families had grown up. The congregation was a, <laughs> the congregation was mate, the congregation was just a whole different group of people by the time I was yeah. finished. So, all that is to say, it was too long. It wasn't really a sermon, uh, and uh, yeah, that was my first experience of preaching. I hope I've got a bit better since then, but it was it was a shocker. It's a shocker, and uh, lots of people there squirming, looking to get off to Mother's Day lunch. And it sounds oh. like you picked your audience well. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. Des, in this series, we're talking about uh, some of the mechanics of preaching and preparation, and then how you've worked at the craft of preaching uh, on your feet over the years. Yep. So let's go into that preparation process. I want to talk about programming first of all. Um, how do you approach that? When do you set your program? I want to ask you about how that's evolved over the years in terms of the size of passages you, you attempt in your program? Yeah, yeah, no, thank you. So I think um, I generally try and plan a year in advance. Um, and I generally try and do that with a little bit of notice. So I generally try and prepare the preaching program for church um, by now. Uh, and so I, I suppose I 
I put the finishing touches on next year's uh, about a month ago. So what's that, the end of September um, here. And I generally do what lots of people do. I have bigger series during school term time, generally exegetical. Uh, and then in between, the sort of the, the connective tissue in between the vertebra um, have smaller exegetical series or more likely to be topical series or doctrinal series or things like that. Um, uh, and so that's generally how I go about setting a preaching program. Yeah, do you, um, what does it mean to set a program? Is that, have you done, you know, do you just say first term, Romans, or you break it up into passages, or you actually start to do some main ideas for talks and things like that? Yeah, well, I think I generally try, and well, I start with the books uh, first, or the topics first, and I generally try and uh, have a balanced diet. So I generally set out when I'm thinking about the year, I obviously take into account what we've already preached on in the previous years, um, but I generally try and have a mix of Old and New Testament um, genre within that. So uh, it might be narrative in the Old Testament one year, but law the next or whatever. Um, I generally won't try and cover a whole big book uh, all in one term. Um, so, uh, so for example, next year in term one, we're going to look at Revelation. And because of the nature of Revelation, I figure that's best covered in big chunks. And so we'll actually cover all of Revelation in term one. But we will do Romans 6 to 11 uh, in term uh, 3 uh, because we started Romans 1 to 5 this year. And so I'll cover Romans over three years, obviously finishing off 12 to 16 in, God willing, you know, 2024. Um, so that's how I do that. And then what I do is... Uh, I will generally then try, I'll try and do that a year in advance, and then about three months in advance to the actual series, I'll try and do a basic breakdown of the book and what I think the main points are. Um, uh, so for example, about a month ago or so, I did a summary of Exodus 1 to 20, which is what we're doing in term four this year, uh, so that I could give that to all my, all my kids' leaders, to the people doing the kids' talks, to the service leaders, so that they had some time to prepare uh, any material they needed to. That's if I'm going well, uh, but that's mm. generally how I try and do it. Let's, let's talk about the ideal circumstance. So, yep, yeah, there's always uh, torpedoes coming at you, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, so, Des, that's helpful for your team. I imagine that's also helpful for you as a preacher because the sooner you do that, it gets stuff kicking around in the back of your head. Yeah. Yeah, and it's yeah. great. So it really does mean that if I'm not, I hate, I hate the idea of opening my Bible on a Monday and just having no idea about what's coming up on Sunday. I just yeah. find, like most people, I think, if I can have ideas percolate, not just for a week, but actually, you know, a, a month uh, or in fact, you know, several months, that's actually just really helpful for me because then it helps me order things if I think of applications that I think will work, I'm not always trying to cram them into the next sermon because I know what's yeah. coming up and I know, oh, no, no, I think that one can wait, but this one would go better here, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, excellent. So time's so important. Uh, okay, well, let's get into the week. Tell us about how you set up your week to prepare well. Yep. Well, I think I generally try and... Uh, I generally try and uh, preach... When it comes to uh, preparing for preaching... I generally budget myself about 10 to 12 hours uh, in the week. It might take uh, a little bit less. Sometimes that really blows out. But I just find 
if I don't set at least a target, uh, it can just consume you and, and other things can get squeezed out, so I don't like to do that. Uh, and generally I would do that in two or three blocks. Uh, so I'd, I'd generally try and start uh, on a Monday morning. Uh, you know, you get, the, you get the first cup of coffee of the day into you and answer a few emails, um, deal with any panic stuff and then get to it. And then uh, I'd probably try and work for about four hours on that. Um, often on the exegesis, the structuring, although ideas for application and illustrations will be coming. I then really, I generally then leave it for a day, get to other stuff. I just find if I can have 48 hours between my first block and second, ideas percolate and settle and problems just sort of seem to resolve themselves. Have another crack at it on um, Wednesday and then probably Thursday I'm then trying to knock it off, um, I suppose. And I find, I find I do creative thinking better in the mornings. Um, so that's generally when I try and do my preaching work. So Monday morning, you're getting into it, you're dealing with some distractions. You've just talked about how you minimise distractions. You deal with some of the distractions first. Some urgent emails, That's clear right. the decks a bit. Shut down then notifications, like tell us how, how do you go with oh. distractions and stuff. Do you, do, you, do you just sort of switch everything off and you go to paper first? How do you, how do you approach your, yeah, yeah, I, your writing? I used to, I used Print to out the text, annotate it. What do you do? Yeah, it's funny. I don't do that. I mean, I know lots of people do. Um, but I, I haven't, in fact, I don't think I've ever done that. I generally, mm. um, you know, I try and get those urgent emails out of the way, things that just really can't wait. But I know that mornings are precious for me because I shut down after about two o'clock, or at least the creative part of me does. Um, so generally what I do is I, I turn off, you know, I put the phone on silent, um, turn, off, mm. turn off the email. Um, uh, I'll just open up my Bible. I go through it with a pencil, but I don't print it out or anything like that. Hmm. And generally what I'm doing, um, certainly on that Monday morning, I'm doing what I call my mad scientist uh, phase. I'm just mucking around in the lab. I'm just getting out <laughs> the test tubes and I'm pouring in the blue liquids and I'm boiling things and I'm seeing what works. I'm, I'm not putting any great pressure on myself to yeah. get, get it all sorted. I'm just seeing what, uh, what I think God is trying to say through the passage, playing with ideas and mucking around and obviously trying to get to the guts of it. Um, mm. And my, uh, my aim really by the end of that first four hour block is to have come to grips with the passage, uh, have got a pretty good idea of the, the big idea, you know, the main mm. idea I really want to prosecute uh, that Sunday. Um, and generally in the lead up to that, I will have also worked out some of the flow of the passage, which will give me structure, probably the odd illustration, but I won't have come up with good applications yet. It's yeah, but that's important because I'm not putting any pressure on myself at that point. I'm just being a mad scientist in the lab. Excellent. So you're defending that time in your diary. You're turning off some, you know, the phone and all the rest of it. And yeah, the yeah. mad scientist. I love the image. I've got visions of you with the hair sticking. Crazy out. hair. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, what is it? The flux capacitor. Yes. Uh, so yeah, right. So that's. Good investment, Monday Des serving Wednesday Des, so that Wednesday Des has lots to work with, heading towards, it doesn't sound like you've got a solid outline on the Monday, although you've got the structure of the passage. Yeah. So tell us about the Wednesday, and I understand this is not set in stone, it'll modify yeah. week to week, but do you go for an outline before you're going for the sort of the words on the page and it all written down? Yeah, it's funny. I've really changed on this. So I've actually, um, 
I used to preach much more from notes. So I'd spend a lot of time just dwelling um, and then uh, not writing a heap down before I stood up and preached. Um, and so, you know, I would really rely very much on an actual physical outline. It would be bullet points. You know, the sermon might only take up, you know, I don't know, two pages, maybe even a page and a half. Um, I think what I found was that uh, for me, I mean, I can speak off the cuff, but the problem is I speak too much off the cuff. Um, and so my sermons were going too long. Um, you could see they were dragging. And so, and particularly when I moved here to Trinity, we had a, a principle here of preaching a bit shorter than I was used to, you know, more like sort of 25 minutes, um, 30 uh, at a stretch. And I actually found to, to hit that, I had to be more disciplined, which meant I had to be much more word for word. Not entirely word for word, but more or less word for word. So that's what I do. Um, but so come Wednesday, outlines themselves are less important. But from Monday, I've I've probably got a pretty good idea of what I want to say by the end of Monday. So come Wednesday, I'm actually having a good crack at getting my notes into order and actually just starting to write it. And I'll, I'll write with headings. Um, you know, I'll have points and I'll have a, a brief sermon outline that'll go in the leaflet on Sunday. But I'm basically just, on Wednesday, I'm trying to get the first draft done um, of everything. Again, not thinking I'll have it finished because that's, that's tomorrow's job, that's Thursday's job. That's when the pressure is on. But that's generally what it'll look like on a Wednesday. Now, you've just waded into a, a really uh, massive online controversy, Des, with I the know. length of sermons. Sermon Des length. You've just made the statement, 25 minutes. I, I didn't say 25 minutes was the ideal length. I said it was what I had to preach here uh, uh, when I moved here. Uh, well, not had to. Like, no one was there. You know, there were no snipers on the roof willing to take me down at 26. But um, that was the expectation. Uh, but I know where you're going with this. Are you going to ask me what the perfect length of the sermon is? Oh, I wasn't going to, but go on. <laughs> well, I've, I've got it on good authority. I've, I've descended from the mountain. I can tell everyone. Uh, look, of course I'm going to hedge on this. I don't think there's a perfect length. Mm. Yeah. I th but uh, what I will say this is, here's my two cents worth on it, because I did read those articles with interest. Yeah, sure. Is, yeah. is I, reckon, I reckon the principle is you preach for as long as you can get away for. Um, mm. So in that sense, I'm a bit more of a maximalist. Um, and the reason for that is I just think my people, myself included, we are being discipled and preached to by Netflix, by Disney, by billboards, by, you know, the ABC, by whomever, all the time. Mm. Um, so I want to have as much opportunity for the Word of God to get into people's ears to uh, disciple them in the opposite direction. So I reckon preach for as long as you can get away for, but... As long as you can get away for, we'll have a whole bunch of constraints on that. Uh, it'll have the length of your service time. It'll have mm. how gifted and engaging a preacher you are. It will have the congregation you're preaching to, some of whom will have a great appetite for long sermons, some of whom won't mm. at all. I find for me, in my context, about 30 minutes is about right. Uh, mm. I can go slightly over on a good day, slightly under, you know, that's fine. But I, I generally aim for about 30. Yeah, so I'm just going to push you on that a little bit because getting away f with it mm. is not uh, nobody jumped up and ran screaming from the building or there wasn't no. a mass exodus, so therefore I got away with it. No, it's getting away with it is what remained helpful. Oh, what, absolutely. At what point were people still engaged? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so the way I'm gauging 
that isn't, you know, if I'm not getting any complaints, because it might just be I have a really patient church. Uh, mm. You know, it's, it's being able to see that people are being engaged uh, and helped right to the end. Uh, mm. You know, I mean, with, with exceptions, you know, there's always someone who's going to nod off or whatever, but, um, mm. or hopefully not physically nod off, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, you've got a chunk on Monday, then on Wednesday. Uh, the difference in time between those two is helpful. There's percolating time, as you mm. put it. You're slow cooking your sermon. Uh, very, very helpful. Uh, how hard do you find it to defend that time in your diary, pastoral responsibilities and so on? Look, I actually don't find it that hard. Um, I mean, it's not that there aren't other things to do, but I've just got into the practice of it, I think, mm. um, uh, where I've just gone, that is the, you know, we've all heard of the time management principle of, you know, you've got, you've got a bunch of rocks of different sizes which you've got to put in the bucket. You always mm. put the big ones in first. I just yeah. figure that's, that's the big one. It's not the only mm. big one, but it's one of the big ones. And I just pop it in first and I generally block it out. Um, and uh, because it, I've been doing that for so long now, it, mm. actually, it actually works out okay. Um, yeah. uh, and, but I also find uh, if I, if I, I, I do actually keep a, a little record of how long I've been working on a sermon, uh, mm. just so I'm, I'm constantly tracking my time bar so I'm not blowing out. Because I know that a sermon's a bit like a, you know, it's a bit like a gas. It will expand to fill any available space you give it. Um, yes. If I gave a sermon 20 hours, it'd take me 20 hours. Mm. Um, uh, and so I, if I can keep it to about 12, that seems I can I can defend that time, but that still leaves me enough time to get to other things in the ministry. Um, although I should say just one last thing, is I do know emergencies crop up. So generally what I'm trying to do, again, this is me at my best, which is not all the time by any means, is I generally try and preach, uh, I try and write the sermon uh, a week in advance. So uh, I'm currently writing next Sunday's sermon this week uh, so that by Friday, on any given Friday, I hope I've actually got two sermons in the in-tray. There's this week's and next Mm. week's. So it means if if a disaster happens next week, I've I've got that buffer. Uh, you've built yourself a cushion. Uh, that's that's wisdom that's cropping up again and again as I talk around the place. So thank you for that. Uh, brother, tell us about um, your use of commentaries. When do they, when do they appear in your process? Um, you, commentaries would generally, they wouldn't appear on, they might appear on Monday if I feel like I've done all I can do myself, but mm. only later in the day on Monday. Uh, they're much more likely to come on Wednesday um, when I'm really just double checking my own thinking, uh, yeah. uh, and and often if if you're an experienced preacher, I find commentaries will often be more of a case of double checking rather than learning for the first time. Now that's not to sound yeah. arrogant, um, and there are sometimes when you look at a passage and you just go, oh, I have no idea what that means. I need to ask X, Y, Z via their commentary, but often it's double checking. Uh, so that's when they turn up in the process. Um, I think when it comes to how many I use, I, or how I use them, it's, it's unlikely that I'll ever read them, you know, kind of cover to cover. Um, mm. So if I've been preaching on Romans, uh, it's unlikely that I will go through, I'll read that whole section on that bit. Mm. What I've tried to do probably more likely is identify the knots that I can't untie on Monday, and I'll just go and see if this person can untie those knots for me. Mm. So I try and use them as a problem solver. 
And I also, I don't actually read that many. Um, mm. So I generally would read two or three commentaries, but no more. Because mm. uh, I've just found that after, after two or three, there's just a law of diminishing returns. Uh, yeah. They just all say largely the same thing. Generally, instead, what I'll do is I'll have one big fat commentary, uh, which goes into detail, which can help me untie mm. those knots. Uh, but I'd start with a, like a Bible Speaks Today, like something that just gives me the 10,000 foot view. Mm. So Thistleton on 1 Corinthians, that'll, that pads out your bookshelf nicely. It, you know. it does. Six foot thick. Um, yeah, that's right. Uh, thank you for that. Now, we're hearing that theme as well. Again, just avoiding the trap by the sounds of it. Uh, as you go deeper and deeper into commentaries, you can get into that trap of just sorting out the issues between the commentaries and that yeah. starting to feed into your preaching. Uh, let me ask you this, Des. Are you uh, an out loud rehearser? Yep. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not an out loud rehearser in the sense that I don't write it out and then when it's finished, you know, stand in my office and then, you know, deliver it from go to woe, mm. you know, for 30 minutes. The first time I ever read the sermon out or deliver the sermon in one hit is actually on the Sunday. Mm. Um, but that doesn't mean I haven't been rehearsing it out loud along the way. Um, so ever mm. since I was a kid, um, uh, I've, always, I've always talked to myself. I prefer to think of it as uh, thinking out loud. It's just the way I yes. order my thoughts. Um, <laughs> And, uh, uh, and I find I'm naturally doing that as I'm, as I'm going. Um, mm. So there's a sense in which I don't rehearse for half an hour. I kind of rehearse for 10 or 12 hours. I'm always mm. reading sentences out to try them on for size, testing the cadence and the cut just to see how they work and sound. Um, and that's how I do it. Um, yeah, I, and I, I think... I, sorry to interrupt. I think, no, I think that's something it took me a long time to learn. Um, the difference between writing to be read as opposed to writing the way you speak. Yeah, yeah, that's and, right. And it took me quite a while to refine that over the years. And reading out loud and, and as they're going to preach it is a way of yeah. helping you understand that difference, yeah. And it is a way of making sure that your sermons actually sound like you speak. Um, because mm. it is a spoken yeah. medium. And I just find yeah. that's helpful. Yeah, people have often asked me for uh, the text of the sermon. Can you, oh, that was great. Can you email that to me? And I said, oh, it doesn't quite work like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. It's hanging sentences and it's full text, but then there's a point and yeah. Yeah, that's totally. Right. Mine too. Yeah. Mm. Okay. All right. So you're standing up on Sunday morning. Uh, what yep. are you standing up with? Um, it sounds like a fairly full text. Yep. Is it on paper? Is it annotated? Are you an iPad man? Just give us a, yeah. a few quick details about that. No, I'm very old school, which is to say I'm mm. not tech savvy at all. Um, I mean, I'm sure I could manage an iPad, but I don't use it. Um, mm. I just stand up with, uh, it's a typed uh, manuscript, uh, generally, oh, it's generally probably about four pages um, mm. of notes. For me, I don't know, it's generally about 2,000 words um, mm. of not quite full text, but fairly close to full text. Um, uh, you know, really regular paragraphs, not quite bullet points. Um, and I just find for me that gives me enough, it gives me enough of a safety net that if I, um, I've got enough words in front of me that I'm not just looking at 
you know, the sentence, preach the gospel here, and expecting to mm. fill that in for five minutes. Although I'm sure I could. Mm. I've got more detail than that. But mm. it's also spaced out enough and uh, not so completely word for word that I still feel like I can make eye contact and all that sort of stuff. Although it's mm. interesting, I find, you know, uh, we've probably all done this, uh, had the misfortune of actually watching a video recording of ourselves preach. And, you know, when I've done that, I've had to turn it off after five minutes. I can't stand it um, because I think, oh, my head is still down too much. I think if there's one thing I, you know, there's always things we want to grow in. I would love to grow better in being able to engage more with people eye level wise. Um, hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I watched you for that point when I saw you down in Hobart recently, and I was—I've got only positive things to say. Oh, oh well, there you say. go. Oh, thank so, you. Yeah, I, I thought it was uh, perfectly reasonable in terms of the amount of time you spent looking at me, Des. So okay. I appreciate that. Oh, good. Oh, thank uh, you. Let's talk. Yeah, let's talk about uh, engagement. Mm. I want to say this: you're a—you're a pretty animated guy. Uh, if listeners are old enough, they'll remember Peter Garrett's dancing style. Yes. You, you, you're a fairly tall guy. The, the arms are out there. Um, there's a fair bit of hand-waving going on. Yes. Um, just tell us about being you in the pulpit and how that's developed over the over time. I mean, you, you're pretty animated. Did it start out like that? or? Oh, look, I don't know. I mean, I think certainly that first one, uh, the 55-minute disaster, I don't think there was much hand-waving going on. I think I was just hanging on a bit like a man onto a life raft, you know, the pulpit was yeah. there for support. Um, oh, look, I, I, I've always been naturally an animated person ever since I was a mm. kid and probably always spoken with my hands. Um, I have had people say to me, Des, you look like a windmill, stop it. Uh, and, I, and I've yeah. thought, actually, that's probably fair. I think if a, a, another thing when it comes to that, I probably could use my arms a bit less. Some people won't mind. Other people will be used mm. to it. Other people will find it, you know, very distracting. Um, but yeah, naturally pretty animated, and I, I think I'm I think I'm okay with that, you know. So long as, but I, so long as I'm listening to people who are going, ah, oh, you know, that was a bit much. Just tone it down a bit, um, you mm. know, which they do from time to time, and I, I you know, it, it helps for a few weeks, and then I'm back to my old tricks. So I, I need to keep an eye on it. <laughs> yeah, and and just moderate your tone and the texture of the sermon as you go along. Well, that's right. I, I remember a, a good friend of mine back in Tassie actually saying. Um, because I'm quite animated, uh, I end up emphasising everything, which of course means you end up yeah. emphasising nothing. It's a bit mm. like, you know, when you're studying for an exam and you highlight every sentence, highlighting every sentence means you've highlighted none of them. Um, yes, yeah. And so that was a helpful lesson for me in shade and pitch and uh, using that kind of stuff a bit more sparingly to make your big points really stand out. Yeah. No, that's really helpful. Okay, well, let's uh, just talk about some other aspects of engagement. Yeah. Uh, because you can preach really faithfully. If people aren't listening, of course, uh, the outcome of the sermon is, well, you, you might as well not bother if no one's listening to you. So mm. um, what do you think for you are the key points for engaging, besides being Peter Garrett-esque in your yes. uh, body language, which is a compliment, by the way. I was a fan of the oils back in the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, They're great. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, what do you think of the, is key for Des Smith holding an audience and uh, carrying truth home to people's minds and hearts? Yeah, all right. I think I'd say three things. Um, gosh, I'm obviously a preacher. I've got three points. Um, yeah. I think the first thing would be I do actually think that clarity is the most important thing to be engaging. 
Um, mm. I think having a really clear idea of what you're saying uh, and then ruthlessly prosecuting that idea, carrying people along, I think people do find that engaging. Uh, yeah. I think sometimes preachers will think that having a, a being really strict with themselves on structure will actually make them less interesting and uptight. I actually find the opposite. I find mm. um, it, that can just become, your sermon just becomes a bit of a word salad. Um, yeah. I find actually the preachers who I find the easiest to listen to are those who, they, they don't think that clarity means explaining every single word in the text. Um, what they think of it as is picking a line through it um, yeah. and just sticking like glue to that line. Um, yeah. So I remember seeing this great documentary. This is an analogy I always use with myself and anyone who's, who I'm talking to about preaching is I remember seeing this great um, documentary about whitewater rafters up in the Himalayas. They're going through these massive, you know, going to kill you stage six rapids, just monsters. <laughs> uh, and so before they tackled it, what they would do is um, you know they're standing on the mountainsides looking down at this raging river. They'd throw a ginormous beach ball down the rapid because what would happen is the beach ball would f naturally follow the line of least resistance. It would it would pick a line through the rapid, um, mm. so they'd know which way to follow themselves. And I kind of feel a bit like that. Like your passage is a rapid, it's all good, but you mm. can't cover all of it. So you've got to pick a line through it uh, mm. and just follow that. Um, and I find that's engaging. So I think clarity is actually the, the first thing for engagement. I think the second thing um, is the, the helpful use of illustrations. I know some people don't use illustrations so much, um, mm. uh, but I actually, you know, what is it? Was it Spurgeon who said that, you know, that the human mind is not a debating hall, but a picture gallery? Um, mm. You know, we, we, we see in pictures and I just find well-chosen illustrations which are, are graphic uh, mm. in the sense of visual, I, I find them really helpful. Um, mm. You've got to be careful that you don't make them so graphic that people only remember the illustration and can't remember the point it was making. Sure, um, yeah. Uh, but I find that entertaining. Uh, well, not entertaining, I, I think it's good for engagement. And then the third thing is, um, and I know we're going to talk about this later, is you've got to have application. Um, mm. uh, I think if you can't show why this matters for people, if you can't, if you can explain the what, but you can't explain the so what um, mm. or the why, then I don't think we've done our jobs as preachers because I think, um, uh, yes, God's word is living and active and it does its own work. But I think when I look at examples of God's word doing its work in the scripture through preachers, it inevitably seems to do it through those preachers attempting to apply that to the lives of their listeners. Um, mm. uh, and so I think those, I think clarity, I, I do like illustrations as engagement. And I think uh, the, where you're all heading towards is actual is application and why yeah. it matters for people. All right. Well, Des, uh, we've got a clip from a recent sermon from you, actually. Yep. So we're going to take a couple of minutes to listen to that, where I think a couple of those things shine through. But actually... Uh, there's a couple of other things I think that are, are prominent in your preaching and very helpful. So let's take a listen yep. and then we'll come back together and uh, chat about that. But then this verse says a third and final thing that I think we find harder to understand. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. Now, what's going on there? I mean, we can see why Adam died because of his sin, 
But God is saying here that that's also why we die. That the reason all humans die is because of Adam's sin. Now, why is that? Well, it's because it says that when Adam sinned, we all sinned. And we're all held accountable for what he did. Now, how on earth can that be fair? Well, of course, under normal circumstances, it wouldn't be fair. So, for example, if you kill someone, it's not fair for me to be held responsible. You're your own person and I'm my own person and we're each only responsible for our own actions, of course. But with Adam, these are not normal circumstances. Because Adam, of course, is not just another person. He's the first person, the first human. And as such, he's the head human, the the leader of the whole race. And so when he does something we can actually be held responsible for it. Think about an example. Think about the example of when Britain declared war on Nazi Germany in 1939. As soon as Churchill, one man, declared war, everyone else in Britain was automatically also at war, whether they chose to be or not. Now, if someone else at that time had declared war, maybe your neighbour or one of the kids at school, well, that wouldn't have had any impact on you, would it? Because they're not your representative, they're not your leader. But because Churchill was the head of the nation, when he declared war, everyone in Britain was at war too. Now, of course, Adam is no Winston Churchill and God is not a Nazi, quite the opposite. But the principle's the same, isn't it? Adam was the leader of humanity, its head. So when he declared war on God, the whole race was counted as also having declared war on God and so also held responsible. Adam sinned and so he died. And because he's the head of the race, when he sinned, we're all held to have sinned too in him. But, you know, if that still feels unfair, us being held responsible for someone else's sin, well, we can actually take comfort because we actually all sin ourselves too, if that's any comfort. I mean, it's not as if Adam sinned but then had totally sinless and delightful children, isn't it, who are only ever responsible for his sin. No, think about the kind of children that Adam produced. One of them was Cain, the world's first murderer who murdered his brother. Now, it turns out that when Adam sinned, he didn't just pass on the guilt of his sin, but also the tendency to do it. It's as if something changed fundamentally in Adam's moral DNA when he sinned, and he then passed it on to us. And so we die because of Adam's sin, but because of Adam's sin, we also die for our own. Adam sinned, and so he died. But because Adam's the head of humanity, when he sinned, we all sinned too. We got caught up in his rebellion and inherited his rebellious nature. And so we die as well. And that's what theologians call the doctrine of original sin. Uh, Well, Des, uh, it's a shame only to listen to that section and uh, not listen to the rest of it together because it sounds like some really helpful stuff there. 
something I want to pick up is your use of questions. Mm, okay. Um, because you're using questions all the way through that section. And in fact, I have listened to the rest of the sermon. You use questions a lot to keep your audience engaged and to be honest about the tension that's raised in the text because mm. there's some really naughty stuff in that passage. Is that something you do consciously or it's just natural to you as part of sort of rhetorical technique? I think it's probably become natural to me, um, uh, but it certainly wasn't always. It was, it was a, a thing that I think I've learnt to do. And you can, of course, overdo it. But I think explicitly trying to ask questions which you think or assume the people in your congregation or listening to you will be asking and then showing them how the Bible answers those questions is actually, actually just a really simple way of uh, engaging the text because you, you ask a question and then you might even rub that question in a bit so that by the yeah. end of your rubbing in... Which you do in that section. They're really good questions and yeah. you're not letting the audience off the hook. Hey, don't just sit there and drift along. There's yep. actually really some really tough stuff here. Let's yeah 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 yeah. yeah thank you. Um, and there is some tough stuff in there. I mean, often, I mean, often the the reason I find it easy to do it is because they're actually the questions I'm asking myself. So I'm actually mm. just letting everyone else into the struggle that I've been experiencing in the study, um, yeah. and going, you know, these are the questions I've had, um, and I found the answers here. I assume you've asked similar questions. Let me show you what I think the Bible says to them as well. Yeah. I'm not sure you'll be able to comment on what I'm about to say, uh, but I'll say it anyway. It's just that what's really clear in the way that you speak is you are you really believe in what you're talking about. You're passionate about it. Um, comes through clearly in your tone. Now, you said before you're an animated guy fairly naturally, so maybe that just is very natural for you. Um, but again, I think that's a feature of your sermon. And, and again, when I heard you down in Hobart, that was very clear to me too. There's a there's a passion and an energy. What we're talking about is really important. Is coming through clearly. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and look, I am naturally animated, but I'm not animated about everything uh, mm. if I don't care about it. And um, so uh, I just it's such a it's a pretty easy topic to get animated about, to be honest. <laughs> okay, I'm but sure if someone's yeah yeah, but obviously you give yourself permission for that, and preachers need to give themselves permission for that. You do it in a Des Smith way. Yeah. Um, other preachers need to do it in their own way to show that passion and how much they care about it. Yeah, That's yeah. really helpful. Yeah. Um, let's go to application, Des. Um, how would you describe application? What actually is it you're trying to do? Yeah. Well, I think, I think in its ultimate form, what I'm trying to do in preaching is what I think the Bible is trying to do, which is to uh, shape people to look more like Jesus. Hmm. Uh, so if I flesh that out a little more, what's the purpose of uh, you know, the gospel? It's, the, it's to form people increasingly into the likeness of Christ, to the glory of the Father, in the power of the Spirit. Um, now that sounds like a textbook answer, but I think it's true. Mm. I'm trying to, uh, uh, I'm I'm trying to let the gospel shine out such that it transforms people in the power of the spirit to look more like the person they were always the Jesus-shaped version of themselves um, mm. to the glory of God the Father. Yeah. Uh, you know, very uh, very Romans eight, um, 
And I think one of the ways that God has ordained that that happens is through the gospel and through preaching. So that's my end goal. It's about life transformation, um, mm. which uh, I think which doesn't mean application is just a bunch of commands. Um, mm. You know, I think that's often the mistake we we do. It's just a bunch of do's. It might be a whole bunch of things. It might be um, I don't want you just to act more like Jesus. I want you to feel the same emotions as Jesus feels here. I want mm. you to, to share his affections. Um, I mm. want you to take comfort uh, in the things he takes comfort in, etc., uh, mm. etc. Et um, mm. So you can do it in all sorts of ways, but I think that's my end goal because I think that's I think that's God's end goal for us and, mm. and the way he's, he's given us preaching and the gospel, or the preaching of the gospel to do that. The use of uh, the language of affections, you're really talking about the heart there. Yeah. Um, and I think that's often the distinction between a lecture and a sermon, isn't it? Um, a lecture simply stops at the heart as cognitive content. Yes. A sermon is about changing the heart and what it's attached to and uh, what its desires are for. Um, there's more to be said there, but um, yeah. So uh, how do you go about a, a good uh, application, Des? What, what's key to getting there? Yeah. Because I think this is a weakness of preaching. If we have a weakness in our tribe, it's often in application. Mm. Um, you've already talked about the length. You know, you've got a good run at your sermon. You're not starting a sermon mm. on Thursday afternoon and then bashing it into shape on Saturday night and standing up Sunday morning. So mm. I think the length of your run-in, uh, your limbering up is the way Rory described it, your limbering up for a long time. Mm. It's like hooking the sermon to mix our metaphors. Yep. Uh, what else is key to a good application? Well, I think the first thing I'm starting with is, let's say I'm, I'm not teaching a, a topic, I'm teaching on a passage, which is what most of us will be doing week by week, is the first thing I'm asking is, why is this here? And so I think it's key to distinguish between the what and the why, or yep. if I can put it this way, the what and the so what. Um, mm. So the what of the passage might be that Jesus is Israel's Messiah. That might be what it says. Mm. But then I've got to ask, well, so what? what? What difference does that make? What difference does that make in my life to the lives of my hearers that uh, Jesus is Israel's Messiah and, and therefore mine? Um, and... And why has God seen fit to communicate that to me? What, what, what change, what, what parts of me that don't look like Jesus does he want to chip off with that truth? Mm. Um, so I think that's the first thing. It's, and it's being fairly ruthless about that and, and trying to work out the why. Um, I think it's then, uh, as I'm thinking it through, I am thinking through, well, are there specific applications in the text that give me clues about that? Um, if it's a text that uh, is more instructional, does have more in uh, commands, I'll, I'll pick up on some of that. If it's a text that doesn't really have commands, um, then I won't do that. Uh, or I'll, or I'll, I'll go easier on the kind of the instructional nature of you should do X, Y, and Z, because at this point in time, God's not doing that. It mm. might be that the why here is God wants me to feel a particular way or look at the world in a particular way. And so I'm trying to do that. Um, in other words, I've, you know, I've, I've got my, I've got my painting palette, and I want to mm. make sure I've got more than just one colour on it. That is instruction. Mm. So I want to make sure I'm, I'm trying to select the best things that I think will fit the text. 
Um, I think one other thing, and this is just a very practical thing, is I'll have a clear idea that I have to have a certain amount of application in my sermon, uh, mm. you know, almost a quota. Um, you know, in my sermon, I want 30% to be application uh, because mm. that lets me off, that doesn't then let me off the hook of, you know, sometimes you're just so exhausted trying to understand it and explain it. You just, mm. You've got five minutes at the end and you're just so exhausted, you just sort of stumble over the line and say, oh, read the Bible, pray and do evangelism, um, yes, yeah. which is hopeless. Um, mm. You know, you're really cheating everyone out of that. Uh, I think I want to be thinking through, um, you know, how can I have sustained time showing people why this matters and how this is good and how God can change them in a way that will help them and be glorifying to him? Mm. And generally for me, that percolation time is really key for that. So mm. it's pretty rare that my applications will ever come to me at the desk. Um, mm. Generally, my applications will come to me, uh, you know, at the shops, in the car, um, you know, in the shower <laughs> or whatever. That, that's when they'll come to me and then I'll write them down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't that amazing? Uh, smartphones, uh, they're a blessing and a curse, but that's something I found. Yeah, they're a blessing in that it's in your back pocket and you can quickly whip it out when you're on the netball sideline or wherever it is and, uh, yeah. and jot something down or record, uh, yes. do a quick recording or something like that. Yeah. yeah, 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 they're great. Yeah. How many times have you thought of that fantastic exegetical insight or application and thought, I will remember that because it's so devastatingly insightful. And then you get home and you... <laughs> it's like, oh, no, I can't remember that. Yep, yeah, that's, yeah right. that's right. So, so there, there's a vote for smartphones. Um, brother, thank you so much uh, for all of that. Do you seek feedback? You're, you're, you're a little way into your preaching career now. I, I imagine, did you do MTS somewhere? I did. I never did MTS. So I, right. I, I was a really involved lay member at church. Yeah, I was an elder at my church, Presbyterian Church, for basically all of my twenties, mm. and then. But I didn't go to college until I was twenty nine, mm. and so I asked around and I said, "Should I do MTS?" And they said, "Well, look, you've sort of, sort of done a, a very spread out MTS for the last decade, and mm. you know, frankly, you're getting on a little bit. Just you know, just go to college." So I didn't do that. Um, but I was always blessed with a strong cohort. Like there was in Tassie at the time, there was a whole bunch of us. We were all learning to preach at the same time. Mm. Um, uh, and so we were always giving each other's, each other feedback. But we also had some good teachers. Um, uh, so my minister, you know, David Jones, uh, was really encouraging, but also happy to give feedback. That was really helpful. Um, mm. And since then, um, I'm just trying to think, I, I haven't, I haven't set in place, but I mean to more formal means of feedback. Um, so I'm a big fan of um, once in a while giving a few people in your church a little sheet where you ask them to take notes and then give you feedback mm. afterwards. Um, mm. And that is, that's actually helpful for two reasons. The first reason is they'll actually have good ideas about how you can improve. Mm. And so that's helpful. But even if they don't, it will give you still a diagnostic about how much your communicating is getting through. So if mm. part of the feedback form is what is the big idea and they get the big idea wrong, I have to assume that I've not communicated it clearly. Um, mm. that, the, that the theological Wi-Fi of getting what's in my skull into their skull, something's broken down there and, mm. and I need to take responsibility for that. So I haven't done that yet, but that's good. I'll go and, I'll go and record this on my smartphone as a, as a to-do. Um, <laughs> right, but before you forget it. Yeah, that's right. Uh, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Des, thanks so much uh, for sharing, uh, for being open with us uh, like this and giving us a little insight. There's so much more to talk about, isn't there? But uh, time's going to beat us, giving us a little bit of insight into the way you approach your week-to-week of preaching and uh, letting us listen into a little bit as well. Uh, Really appreciate uh, you sharing that with us. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. If you're in church leadership, we encourage you to consider the Reach Australia Development Program. Our vision is to see churches reach the lost and mobilise the saints more effectively. The Development Program is a 24-month leadership development program to help church leaders and their team grow their churches to become healthy, evangelistic and multiplying churches. Across the two years, you'll receive a comprehensive church consult as experienced leaders come alongside you and your team on site to conduct a thorough analysis of your church. You'll receive monthly coaching with a trained coach and also be joined in a cohort across three residential intensives. These cohorts will provide you with the skills and tools for growth as well as peers to learn and share with. For more, head to reachaustralia.com.au where you'll find information about a cohort starting near you.